1915, the New York Yankees purchased the rights to an up-and-coming young baseball player from the Detroit Tigers. He quickly became the Yankees' starting first baseman. He led the league in home runs in 1916, and then in 1917, he led the league in home runs again. In 1923, he led the Yankees to the World Series title. He was quite a star. And in 1925, this star, by the name of Wally Pipp, asked his manager for the day off because he had a headache. Maybe he had the flu. You see, he was a little sick, just needing a short respite. So the manager obliged him, and he inserted Wally Pipp's backup, a youngster by the name of Lou Gehrig. Gehrig went on to set the Major League Baseball record by playing in 2,130 consecutive games, and Wally Pipp never got his job back. Just an interesting piece of baseball lore to start the day. Sports can teach us a lot of lessons. Sports can also make us feel very old. This last year, one of my athletic heroes, Kobe Bryant, retired from the NBA. And this was a weird thing to witness for the first time. That is, for the first time in my lifetime, I had watched an athlete's entire career from start to finish. I remember hearing rumors about Kobe Bryant back in 1996, about this youngster from Lower Marion High School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who was so good he was going to go straight from the pros to the NBA. And this guy, people talked about being better than Michael Jordan. That was 22 years ago. An even stranger phenomena is seeing players that I watched as a child now have their children playing in the pros. I remember watching Tim Hardaway cross over the Knicks, and now I turn on the TV and I see Tim Hardaway Jr. playing for the Knicks. It's an eerie, strange feeling, and I don't like it at all. (laughs) Now, I feel even older when I myself go out and try to play basketball. The next day, I ache and hurt in weird places and in weird ways. It never used to happen like that. And even worse, I can't even see the score on the bottom of the television when I'm watching sports without my glasses on. Now, I can still run pretty quickly, but it seems that death is closing the gap with leaps and bounds. Now, I know some of you that are older than me might look at this and say, that's hyperbolic. But in reality, it's not. We try to ameliorate, we try to ease these unfortunate realities of life with weird cliches, saying things like, yeah, the the body might be breaking down, but with age comes wisdom. Maybe. I think my wife can attest to the fact that that euphemism may not be applicable in my case. The body's starting to break down, but the wisdom train might have taken a detour. However, I do think that wisdom is trying to teach me something. And it's teaching me something that's very difficult to grasp as a child. So young people, listen up. This is what wisdom is trying to teach me. And that is this. Everyone is weird. Everyone is weird. I often look at people and I think, wow, just wow, This is a strange person. I can't believe that they enjoy doing thing X or they enjoy doing thing Y. 
Wisdom is trying to teach me, and I'm very slow in picking this up, I admit it. But wisdom is trying to teach me that those same people probably look at me and think, that is a strange guy. Who enjoys reading philosophy for fun? Who watches that much football? Now, I want to preface what I'm about to say by noting that I'm going to alienate a large portion of my audience. I go into this with that foreknowledge. My apologies in advance. But I have always found people's fascination with Star Wars weird. (laughs) I I personally, I have these self-imposed guidelines for watching movies. And I'm not talking about religious or ethical or moral guidelines. I'm talking about aesthetic preferences. And these rules for movie watching for myself include, but are not limited to the following. No movies with half-hour car chase scenes. Spare me. I mean, the guy's going to get away. We know what's going on. Cut to the end. Generally, no movie that's billed as America's number one anything. Everyone in America wants to see it count me out. And most importantly, no unrealistic movies. No movies with Martians or goblins, aliens, transformers, hulks, or Jedis. Just not my cup of tea. Now, you may not share my obviously correct sensibilities about Star Wars. Your sanctification may be lacking in that area, and I promise to pray for you. You may enjoy sci-fi and fiction in your movies and books. But I find that most Christians shy away from parts of the Bible that seem fantastical, that seem different, that seem strange. We don't like those stories. In our sermon text today, The Transfiguration of Christ, we are greeted with one of these stories. I'd like to address the text, Mark 9, 2 through 10, under three headings. They are not printed in your bulletin, so you'll just have to listen. The three headings are proper narration, ontological glory, and redemptive historical glory. So that's proper narration, ontological glory, and redemptive historical glory. So first, proper narration. Our story, the transfiguration of our Lord, is quite a strange story indeed. And it's really dissimilar in many ways to the rest of the Jesus narrative. It's a story we may skip over in Sunday school class, and we certainly don't bring it up in conversations with non-believers. Let's stick to the parables. Right? They're a little more palatable. They're a little more normal. At least they seem so on the surface. Here in our text, we see Jesus going up a mountain with James and John and Peter. And then out of nowhere, he begins shining a radiant, brilliant light. And then Moses and Elijah show up. They've been dead for thousands of years. And then the texts say they start talking with Jesus. And then they're gone. And it's just Jesus, James, John, and Peter. This type of story doesn't sit well with us. And that should tell us a few things, the fact that the story doesn't sit well with us. First, the uniqueness of this story speaks to the authenticity of the text. The uniqueness of the story speaks to the authenticity of the text. We should ask ourselves this question. Why would Mark, who was the disciple of Peter and the author of this book, which is the first and the earliest gospel, 
why would he include this strange story, which might very well dissuade people from accepting the gospel, if it were not true? That is to say, he wouldn't include it. This is not something that an author writing a work of fiction would just tack in and add in. Secondly, the story not sitting well with us gives us a nice glimpse into our epistemological depravity. That is to say, we like to fit Jesus in snug and cozy to our preconceived conceptions of reality, to our preconceived conceptualization of normalcy. We consistently, over and over and over again, fail to view the world and the happenings of reality through the word. The word of God, the gospel, Jesus, these are the lenses through which we should view the world. Those are our barometers for normalcy. Jesus is the lens through which we are called to view all reality, and he is the shining light that illumines that reality. It is in his light that we can see truth. We don't, or at least we should not, discover our personal truths, whatever that means, because it's nonsense, and then try to see if Jesus fits into that personal truth. Viewing the world through the word, through Jesus, is the very thing that transfigures darkness into light. But we fail to do this. The way we normally view the world shines a glaring and incriminating light on our perpetual denial of our creaturehood. We deny our derivativeness. We deny our secondariness. We deny the contingent nature of our being. And in so doing, all of us are reenacting the sin of Adam in the garden. We are claiming lordship over the, over the story of reality. We are denying our place as vassals under the lordship of the triune God. We are implicitly declaring we're not satisfied with our subordinate position. This is a sin which Calvin says is not simply a childish intemperance, but he calls it a monstrous wickedness. This passage and the gospel in general demand that we re-narrate our perverted conceptualization of reality. Jesus narrates the story. You don't. Which brings us to our second point. Ontological supremacy. Ontological supremacy. If you are unfamiliar with the word ontological, let me quickly explain it. Ontological is just a word used to describe things in the field of ontology. Got it? Good. Ontological or ontology is a branch of metaphysics, which is another scary word, which focuses on the nature of being. Um, So to speak of Christ's ontological supremacy is to note his firstness, his primacy, his eternality. Look, if you would, at verse 3 of our text. Mark 9, verse 3. reads, His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now, there are many important things to be gleaned from this one verse here. First, when reading it, you should note that it is a deeply Trinitarian verse. Jesus is radiantly shining with light, the light that is the glory of God's being. And he is shining with the glory of God's being 
because he is the glory of God. Jesus is God, and God is resplendent in glory. Now, some might ask, why is it so important to note the Trinitarian nature of this verse or of Scripture in general? And there are many good answers to that question, both theological and philosophical. But the most fundamental answer to that question, why, do, why must we note the Trinitarian nature of the Bible? It lies in the simplicity of the fact that this is who God is. God is God in this way. His way of being God is to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously from all eternity, perfectly complete in his radiant, shining, resplendent love. I think many of us, we pay lip service to something that we deem primarily a theological plaything, the Trinity. What we care about, we care about the gospel. But what we fail to realize is the Trinity is the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is that God has opened up his triune life and he's given us a share in that fellowship. God has by sheer grace opened himself and turned outward in order to draw us back in. We need not be, and yet we are. We are because he is. Notice here in our text something quite unique. Moses and Elijah are present. And this should tell us something very important. Moses and Elijah were certainly great men, but they were just that. They were men. As great as he was, remember Moses was kept out of the promised land because of all of his failures. I read one scholar who said, this is Moses' first time in the Holy Land. It's unique, right? It's Moses' first time he made it. And here he stands, Moses, a man who the world saw as a mere mortal, now immortal, talking with his Savior and sharing in his radiant glory. Mere men are sharing and basking in the presence of the triune, radiant God of love. Now, this text reminds us that we are made for eternity. And even further, and this is important to note, even further, our identity does not end in death. That doesn't mean death is not the end. Hear that. Our identity does not end in death. Who you are does not end in death. Right? Moses doesn't show up here with angel's wings. He isn't transformed from Moses into a cherubim or some heavenly creature. He is Moses, made immortal, sharing in the glory of his Lord. The gospel ceases to be the gospel if it doesn't culminate in that. If we are saved from our sin and then left to our own devices and desires, the gospel isn't good news. Because God is goodness. And it is only by being in his presence and having table fellowship with him that we can enjoy anything that is lovely or anything that is good. So this Trinitarian shining glory of Christ that we see here speaks to his ontological supremacy. Because he is fully God. He is completely and fully prior to all else. He is eternally begotten of his Father before all worlds. 
He has existed forever in a community of eternal love. Notice that the Old Testament, when you first turn open your Bible, it starts with the beginning of creation. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the gospel, the good news, the New Testament, as we just heard a few weeks ago, that starts ontologically prior to the Old Testament. Right? The New Testament starts ontologically prior to the Old Testament. John 1.1 1, 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before Abraham was, I am. And before creation was, Christ is. In this transfiguration, we are not left with some divine blur, but we have a magnified and intensified look at the Trinitarian majesty of God. We as Christians like to talk a lot about grace, but here we see the foundation of grace, which is the eternal majesty of the triune God. The eternal Son has eternally existed alongside the eternal Father. And by the sacrifice of that eternal Son, we too share in that aspect of the Trinity, eternal glory and radiant light. This is what we declare when we recite the Nicene Creed. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Now, we should take careful note of how we are to respond to the presence of this ontologically supreme Christ. Look at verse 7 of our text. This is how we are to respond to the ontologically supreme Christ. Verse 7 reads, And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. When encountered with the Trinitarian God, our first response should be, listen. Hear him, the text says. Be present, be calm, listen up. Now, listening is difficult for a lot of us. We're doers, we're problem solvers, we're fixers. Maybe worse off, we're inattentive. But here, we shouldn't be like Peter and try to go fix some tents so that we can extend the moment or turn this into some sort of religious ceremony. No, listen, the text says. Be still and know that I am God. Scripture often says these words, and I'm sure you're all familiar with them. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus says it repeatedly in the Gospels. John says it in the book of Revelation repeatedly. He who has ears, let him hear. We, the church, are creatures of the word. And our first and our highest duty is to listen. That is the church's first and highest duty, to be listening creatures. The great theologian John Webster, in writing about this idea, the idea that the church's primary duty is to hear, he says these words, it is the lectern and not the pulpit that is the chief means of grace. It is the lectern and not the pulpit that is the chief means of grace. That is where we hear the word of God, his speech. But even in listening, we must remember that hearing is a gift. Not all that have ears hear. 
And those that do have ears only can hear once they've been spoken to. Our God, by pure grace, turns himself outside. Our God, by pure grace, speaks. And our God, by pure grace, lets us hear. The gospel is grace all the way down, not just at the level of justification. It is grace from sunrise to sunset. It is grace from the beginning through all eternity. Grace all the way down. Now, God speaking here in our text should perk up the ears of those who can hear. It should perk up the ears of the careful reader of Scripture. The words of God here clearly echo the words spoken at the baptism of Jesus. At the baptism of Jesus, which we just heard preached on a few weeks ago, maybe last week, God speaks and says, You are my son in whom I am well pleased. I want to quickly tease something out here that I think is often underplayed. Notice that God, in the baptism of Jesus, and here on the Mount of Transfiguration, God is well pleased with Jesus. The Father is well pleased with the Son prior to him having accomplished his work. God is well pleased with Jesus prior to the atonement, prior to his death, prior to his resurrection, prior to his ascension. Now, if God is well pleased with Jesus, apart from his redemptive work, and we are made in God's image, shouldn't we strive to revel, to take joy, to be well pleased in Jesus just for who he is? Do we ever praise God just because he is God and worthy of praise? Do we praise him because he is the essence of love, of goodness, because he is shining glory? Now, we may be unable to fully do this, and that may not be that bad a deficiency, because the shining glory that we see here on the Mount of Transfiguration, the shining glory of Christ is quite unique. And that brings us to our third and final point, the redemptive historical glory of Christ. The redemptive historical glory of Christ. Now, I think it's important here to make two points about the brilliant, radiant, shining, transfigured Christ. First, in one sense, this shining is somewhat familiar to us, and the text would be familiar in some essence. Yes, the light of Jesus was shining before this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. The light of Jesus shines in the wonders of the created order. The heavens declare the glory of God. Christ shines in leading his chosen people out of captivity. God shines in the pillar of fire that guided Israel. Christ shines in his birth. He shines in his spotless life. And he shines in the miracles he performs. Yes, Jesus is always shining. That's very well, true, beautiful, and good. But to stop there, And to conclude that our passage here is just another instance of that type of shining, or it's just a more intensified version, would completely miss the point. To get the full point or the major thesis of what's going on here, we must remember the context for this excursion up the mountain. The trip to the Mount of Transfiguration comes directly after Peter has dramatically proclaimed 
Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus responds to Peter by telling him that he, the Son of Man, would have to suffer many things. That's what happens right before they go up the mount. And it is only with this context in mind that the text can take its proper and full form. We are not here just seeing a more magnified instantiation of Jesus in this text. Peter, James, and John are getting a glimpse of the sheer glory that is the risen, triumphant, death-defeating Lord of the universe. They're getting a sneak peek into the future. They're getting a preview of the eschatological glory of God. The description of Jesus in our text is quite similar to the one that John gives in Revelation chapter 1, where he sees the risen Lord, who is glorious, so glorious that John falls down as if dead when he sees him. Listen to these words from Revelation 1 and see how similar the image of Christ in Revelation 1, now risen and ascended, how similar that is to the transfigured Christ. This is Revelation 1. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. The Lord here on the Mount of Transfiguration is providing Peter, James, and John with the ultimate source of comfort. Yes, Peter, the Son of Man will suffer many things. You, Peter, James, John, you will suffer many things. You, people of Westminster, will suffer many things. But take heart. Here is the finish line. The prize is already won. Take this image with you. The image of your Savior in his redemptive glory. Shining hair, eyes like blazing fire, feet like glowing bronze, a voice like rushing waters, a face shining like the sun. Go walk with that vision. Go about your daily work and go about the sufferings and injustices of this life with the absolute certainty that I have won the day. Be confident and be bold because glory awaits you. Friends and brothers, in the midst of your struggles, we are to fix our eyes on the historical, redemptive, risen Christ. The war, though still in progress, is already won. Victory is yours in Christ. And the spoils of war land you in the midst of the radiant, triune God. All by grace. That's the gospel, and that is very, very good news. Amen.